Welcome to Dispatch Live. I'm David French, and I promise you I'm not coming from a yellow room. Uh, I'm on the road, and my camera is having the hardest time resolving the hotel decor. So I'm just going to have sort of like rotating colors behind me throughout this entire thing. I apologize. I also want to apologize if you sense any friction on the team tonight. Normally, we're extremely harmonious, but late last night, I beat Declan's fantasy football team with a field goal in the second half of the Rams-Niners game. And frankly, he's a little angry and hurt. Um, and so I'm I just hope you don't sense too many, too many, uh, too much tension here. We'll we'll power through, won't we, Declan? You can kind of swallow it for a, an hour or so. <clears throat> I've got so many winning fantasy football teams that the dispatch league, you know, losing one game to David, it's not, not the end of the world. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. nuts because when, when Declan and today in the office, when he was asking me if I had the power to fire David, I, I said, <laughs> I didn't know. I, I didn't know what that was about. <laughs> fantasy issues. So that's like I said, adds up. Glad we figured it out. Hey, so. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to quash the beef and we're going to just start for an hour. For, for an, an hour, hour, for an hour, and we're gonna and we're gonna start. We got a lot to talk about. We're gonna start with Herschel Gate. Talk about the response to Ian and any political potential political fallout. We're gonna talk about what's happening in Ukraine. Um, are we in an extremely dangerous moment right now, or just a dangerous moment right now? Uh, and if we've got some time, we're gonna talk about some Supreme Court. But uh, first, let's talk about Herschel Walker. Uh, Yesterday, Daily Beast comes out with a story that includes a cancel check for $700, a get well card that says that uh, uh, he paid for a woman's abortion in 2009. Then shortly after that, his son, who is kind of a MAGA influencer, am I wrong about that, uh, on the on TikTok, um, comes out and lambasts his dad, just lambasts his dad for not being there for him, for not being there for his kids. It got brutal. Andrew, this is we're we're gonna go around the around the horn, but Andrew, this has been your beat down in Georgia. You've uh you've covered what's been happening in Georgia for months now. Tell us what the heck. Well, so the the first subtext of this is that uh Herschel had a pretty bad summer, um, just in terms of a lot of negative headlines coming out as a first-time candidate with a lot of gaffes, but he had actually been improving in the polls quite a bit. Um basically neck and neck race um, with with uh, incumbent Democrat Raphael Warnock uh, going into the home stretch. Uh, national Republicans were were pretty bullish about that state. Um, and yeah, and, th- and now you get what is, I mean, like an October surprise among October surprises, um, at least uh, sort of classically considered um, a thing that really strikes at the core of his message. He's been a, a really, really pro-life uh, candidate in terms of his the, his policy proposals on the stump, um, a lot of Republicans have been kind of running away from from uh, abortion politics, but he has been kind of um, unflinching and basically calling for pretty stringent bans at both the state and federal level. Um, and and so yes, you get this accusation in the Daily Beast that is really well corro- uh, corroborated, evidentiarily. I mean, you have a. Mm-hmm. Uh, she has a receipt for the day she got the abortion in 2009. She has a check that she cashed from Herschel Walker for roughly the same amount of money that same week and a get well card signed by Herschel Walker in which the check came. So, I mean, it's like 
it's really not hard, that hard to put two and two together. He has strongly denied uh, mm-hmm. that he ever paid for an abortion. He did not deny that the card or the check had were his. He said he basically said on Sean Hannity last night, well, you know, I, I give a lot of money to a lot of people. I sign a lot of get well cards. I mean, just kind of remarkable uh, combination of denial and non-denial there. Um, but the the really um, kind of remarkable thing is, is the way in which... Uh, I mean, basically the entire party apparatus, a lot of commentators have have rallied around him. There's no sense that he's going to lose endorsements. There's no sense that he's going to lose uh, national outside money. Um, a lot of people in the kind of the commentating class are, are like, look, what we care about is people who are going to vote Republican. Uh, and, and, and I mean, that's kind of the uh, the most um just kind of cynical edge of, of that commentation commentating. There's a lot of people who are like, well, you know, isn't it good that people can change uh, over time, that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, it, the, there, there's not a lot of sense that Republicans are going to abandon him, but, uh, George is not necessarily the kind of state where a Republican can stumble down the stretch and mm-hmm. still win these days. And we, we saw yeah. that, uh, you know, two years ago in 2020, where, where both, uh, David Perdue and Kelly Leffler kind of stumbled into the finish line and ended up losing. It's kind of like a 48% Republican floor in a general election. And, and you got to get that last 3% somehow uh, these days. So so it's really hard to say he's in worse shape today than he was uh, uh, yesterday. There's absolutely no question about it. All right, Adam. Okay, I'm coming to you with the obvious question, or maybe not so obvious. Everyone says GOP post-access Hollywood, none of this is going to matter. Eh, not so sure about that because in 2017, after Access Hollywood, there were a bunch of explosive allegations about Roy Moore in a far redder state, far redder state than Georgia, where you actually have to affirmatively try to lose a race if you're a Republican. And Roy Moore lost a race to Doug Jones. Um, is this does this feel more to you like Trump? Access Hollywood, Trump win, or Roy Moore explosive allegations, Roy Moore loses? And how much does it matter in your mind that it's a difference between the presidency and a, a Senate seat? Right. Well, that that's a tough question. And I guess what we're really going to find out is the answer to that in about a month from now, right? right? Which way it goes. But the, the when I saw the news last night on, on our Slack channel and we were planning our story and everything, I have to say, I was just like, oh, okay, of course. I was not at all sh- remotely shocked that this happened. And especially, it's not necessarily the standard that's set for all of the GOP, but it also depends on the individual. There are people who have been taken out by scandals since Access Hollywood. Right. I, I forget, I can't recall if it was before or after, but there was, if I recall correctly, a Republican congressman, a pro-lifer, who had paid for an abortion for one of his mistresses. And I believe he's no longer in Congress. So people can still go away for reasons like that. But the thing with Herschel, and I think why I think he's more akin to Trump is that by the time the Access Hollywood tape came out, there was sort of a sense like, oh, that's all they got on Trump. You know, he's talking about buying women furniture and grabbing them and that sort of thing, which is basically what everyone expected. Mm-hmm. And the a, sort of, I don't want to say apolitical, but the people who are less interested in politics in my life, they thought it was disgusting or they thought it was funny, whatever it was, but no one was surprised by it. Right. And when I hear this about Herschel, given all of the, the secret children, or I guess they're not secret, depending what his spin is, but all of the messy things happening in his personal life. When I saw this last <laughs> night, I just thought to myself, yeah, sounds about right. Um, you know, and it's 
tragedy. It's an abortion. It's, in my view, someone, a human being dying, right? Mm-hmm. And it's something that we shouldn't just look at nonchalantly. But it didn't really take me by surprise. And I don't, I, and I suspect that if he does win, that's why, is because people yeah. just, that's baked in for him. So, Declan, how, what's interesting to me is, and this is a comment. So I'm just turning to you and say, Declan, here's my comment. Then I'll have a question. So here's my comment, Declan. The hardest core segment of the pro-life movement is the abolitionist movement. And the abolitionist movement wants wants to prosecute women, for example, for having abortions, that abortion is murder. And yet the hardest core segment of the pro-life movement is most likely to excuse Herschel Walker as if uh, and with the message seems to be abortion is murder and we should prosecute women for it. But if our politician we like committed murder for hire, eh, people change. Um, seems like kind of a tough conception. But Declan, the question I've got for you is as you're as you're looking at this and and as you're if you're thinking through mm. the consequences, let's roll this out and say for a moment, let's just presume for a moment that Walker loses. Far from certain, far from certain. If I had to, I, I wouldn't even know how to bet right now if he's going to win or lose. Is, will there be, I know the question is, should should there be, yes. Will there be soul searching on the part of the GOP in <clears throat> its consistent uh, failure to nominate candidates that can win extremely winnable races? Uh, you know, what, the, what's funniest about this race and, and that this scandal is breaking in this race is that this is the one of all the, you know, nomination fights that we've seen among with within Republican candidates over the past several months. This was the one where Mitch McConnell was like, yeah, go ahead. Herschel Walker, he endorsed him very early on. And yes, mm-hmm. part of that was because Herschel Walker was going to win no matter what McConnell did. I think we talked about this on a dispatch live a couple of weeks ago. Nobody, (laughs) we didn't know who came in second place to Herschel Walker because it was that much of a non-primary. Yeah, massive. Uh, (laughs) um, But, you know, it, what surprises me is, you know, I I think it, it makes sense that Republicans rallying around him, you know, he's going to be a vote for the pro-life cause, even if, he himself is not pro-life's uh, calculations uh, to to that effect. They're completely relying on the Daily Beast story, and, and it's kind of a a mix between. So what if he did it? He's going to be a pro-life vote. To it's fake news. He didn't do it. Um, and they're in all of that. They're completely ignoring the allegations from his son, mm-hmm. um, which I think are just as damning, if not more so. Let me just read for people who haven't seen. Um, we put this in the morning dispatch this morning, but Christian Walker, this is Herschel Walker's son who has supported him throughout the campaign and is a huge um, kind of right-wing commentator, influencer. He's in his mid-20s, tweeted that you're not a family man when you left us to bang a bunch of women, threatened to kill us, and had us move over six times in six months running from your violence. Now, that's a very heavy accusation. Uh, Walker, I think, Andrew, correct me if I'm wrong, in the past 24 hours, his only response to those comments have been a tweet saying, I love my son no matter what. Um, not denying any of the allegations there, not atoning for anything that that was said there. That's equally 
damning in my view of, of a candidate. Um, you know, we're not hearing as much conversation about that because it's a much more uncomfortable position to defend. I think if you can, Republican team players can kind of stay in the, you know, blast the media for covering this for being unfair if you want to do that or you could go the the further route and say you know so what if he did this he's changed he's a vote for whatever um but it's it's really difficult <laughs> for me to square uh that republicans are rallying around him for this but the entire institutional gop and this was a smaller story a couple of weeks ago mm-hmm. completely dropped their support of this candidate in ohio um who lied about being an Afghanistan veteran, that he was in combat in Afghanistan, right. a stolen valor situation. The party apparatus like that stopped funding him. They basically ceded the race to the Democrats. They were like, we don't want anything to do with this guy. And I guess there's an issue between, you know, House backbencher versus Senate in a highly contested 50-50 uh, world that we're living in. But it just really is, it shows you the Machiavellian uh, nature of politics where, okay, we're not okay with this bad behavior here because it doesn't affect us X percent, but here it really does. So we need to be able to, um, live with more, with more. And so, um, I mean, it's, it's disheartening. It's, you know, it, and again, from the pro-life perspective, it's not like Raphael Warnock is any better, uh, as, as the alternative, but it, it it just leaves people who truly have that position in such a bind. And and I'm glad I don't live in, in Georgia and have to make that vote. Declan, that last thing that you said, uh, you know, just about like it, it really mattering a race that, you know, is going to get washed out one way or the other in the house versus like a a real control of the Senate. Um, a a few years back, um, if you, if you guys remember, uh, in Virginia, uh, then governor Ralph Northam's blackface scandal, um, Mm -hmm. where he had the yearbook and it was like the kind of fun guessing game. Oh, there's this yearbook picture is Ralph Northam, the one in the Ku Klux Klan costume, or is he the one in the blackface, you know, sort of choose your own adventure. Yeah. There there was a lot of speculation, like, is he going to have to resign? Is this going to end his career? And then a couple of days later, or not even like a day later, and another like terrible story came out about the Lieutenant governor. Um, and it was like, oh my gosh, are they both going to have to resign? Uh, is the, is, I, I can't remember. I guess the, my, 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 there was a third too. It was like the, the third, the third in is line. that person going to become also. the governor? And then that person had a blackface yeah. scandal. And then it was like, okay, they're all staying in power because the next person up would have been a Republican. And it's like, okay, maybe, uh, maybe we would have like been willing to throw these people to the wolves, um, sort of like, uh, in, in as as this principled stand kind of in a vacuum, but we're not going to hand over you know party control of the entire state to do that. Like, come on, be reasonable. And it's so it's not it's not just a like a Republican problem. Obviously, it's right. just kind of the the nature of politics that if it matters more, it matters more, right? So uh, and I uh, do Andrew, wonder. Oh, go ahead, David. I was just saying, Andrew, while you're talking, you volunteered to answer a question in the Slack, um, which is and it's related to another question too. Uh, this is what one. Uh, this is from <clears throat> Kevin. If Republicans voting for Walker ignore the story about Walker, is the proof that the GOP doesn't care about pro-life policies now? As in, social conservative is no longer GOP, and that's related to another question from Joe. Dana Lash today was arguing basically Walker only aborted one baby. Warnock wants to allow people to abort all the babies. What's the steel man argument for pro-lifers here? So why don't you take a crack? Because I think both of those are related. Yeah, so let me let me go back to front. I mean, I think that that for the pro life orgs, um, mm-hmm. that that is the steel man. I mean, right? It's yeah, it's that we is want argument. people who are going to pass policies, these policies that we've put forward, um, that that are going to change abortion policy in America. I mean, like the people who run the people who run uh, 
you know, uh, Susan B. Anthony, pro-life America are, are not in Georgia. They do not have to wrestle with their consciences, but whether they are going to go out and vote for Herschel Walker. Um, but to, to them, Herschel Walker is a vote for, for pro-life policies. So I, and I think it's, I think it's as simple as that. Um, mm -hmm. So when it comes to like the, the, I guess, thornier question of, of like, if, if you're in Georgia, what do you do as a conservative, as a Republican? Um, I don't think, uh, it's necessarily the case that the GOP is is less socially conservative now than it has been in any other time. Um, I mean, I, I don't, that's a question that has its own answer, obviously. But I also think that what social conservatism means in the Republican Party is so much more extensive now. I mean, you, you, you kind of, and, and, and I think people identify social conservatism now with just kind of this, this broad cultural sense um, that that America is in peril and that that, you know, we absolutely need to win all these elections no matter the cost. So it is almost like a weirdly like socially conservative argument for why we need to, uh, you know, ignore things like this and just vote Republican no matter what um, because of X, Y or Z, because of wokeness or because of, you know, uh, trans policy or, or who knows what. Um, but I, 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 I think you would see different arguments if people did not think that Herschel Walker was still going to be a reliably pro-life vote, uh, mm -hmm. notwithstanding this scandal. Yeah. So, um, Adam, one question. It's kind of a funny question, but uh, it sort of a, betrays the dysfunction of our politics. So let's suppose Abrams loses, as it looks like Abrams is likely to lose, and Herschel Walker loses. Who has the voter suppression, voter fraud argument? Well, you know, those can the, the the beautiful thing about that argument is you can deploy it however you need to, right? True. So I'm sure Herschel Walker could come up with some reason that the deep state preferred Kemp because he let um, he let Biden win in 2020, Ooh. and then he opposed Herschel, uh, who might strike back against him ahead of 2024. So that could work. Um, <laughs> but but if Abrams, but but then the other side of this, of course, is that. Abrams herself is an election denier just from two years earlier. So how she approaches that and deals with that and explains why Warnock was allowed in, but not her, will be an interesting question. But for the, I don't know, 98% of us who know deep down in our hearts that it's all complete BS, uh, I guess we can kind of just laugh and point out to those people that 2% or whatever it is that, hey, maybe, you know, we actually do live in a functioning democracy. And sometimes you don't get the outcome you like, and sometimes you do. And Sometimes it happens on the same day. You have mixed outcomes. Yeah, um, I also they, think that that's that that that's an increasingly likely outcome. I mean, one that's what the polling shows, and a thousand grains of salt for the polling. And I myself am, am not entirely confident about it this cycle, but uh, that that is what it says. It's going to be a Kemp and uh, Warnock victory. But also, voters in Georgia got practice splitting their ticket. In in 2020, or I guess it was early 2021. That it, that's a like a light bulb went off. Like, oh yeah, we can do this. We don't have to vote along the party line 100 of the time. And it's it's a very small group who did that, but it was enough to flip an election. And you know that's something that we could see. Like, oh yeah, I that's totally fine. E either you know I vote for Kemp and Warnock, or I vote for Kemp and leave the Senate blank, and that's mm -hmm. you know almost as good for for Warnock's chances. And so, right. um, you know, right. that's that's something that you learn over time. That's uh, you know a a uh, the <laughs> the never ending uh, problem for the Republican Party that was January twenty twenty one that that Donald Trump gifted in, yeah. in his wake. 
All right. Well, let's we've spent a lot of time on Herschelgate. Let's move to something a lot more consequential, as in so consequential we could be in an absolutely pivotal world historical moment. And I hope not, because if it is a pivotal world historical moment, it's because the nuclear taboo might not be might be broken. Adam, you've covered this part of the of the world. You've been following the progress of Ukrainian military. It is absolutely, I think at this point, the Ukrainian military hasn't just exceeded expectations in its fight with Russia. It has taken those expectations, blown them to pieces, stomped on them, maybe surprised even their own optimistic projections about what they could do, especially in this counteroffensive. And there's now, you know, I was just listening to David Petraeus saying, you know, look, you could potentially see the collapse of the Russian front. In other words, we've seen re- wholesale retreat. We have seen surrenders in ones and twos. You couldn't, you could, it is conceivable to see large unit surrenders. That's almost too, I won't even let my mind hope for that. But a dictator in a state of crisis with who possesses nuclear weapons, it, this is a dangerous moment in world history how what what is your level of concern and why right it's it's a deeply conflicting emotion because the mm-hmm. past 7 months has been ukraine defying every expectation mm-hmm. i remember in february i was just a few hundred miles away from the border where i was living at the time and i was on the phone with uh, a pentagon official and he said oh yeah the ukrainians are doing all right but talk to me in 2 weeks and if they're still around it'll be interesting then that means something. But, you know, these early pockets of resistance, ah, you know, Saddam put up quite a fight uh, in, in, uh, in, in 2003 before it all fell apart for him, right? You know, it was pretty fierce resistance, things like that. And the story of the past seven months has been, oh, okay, well, maybe they can, maybe they can hold Kiev, actually. Oh, okay, well, maybe they can take Kharkiv, but, you know, it's going to be hard to go beyond that. And, oh, they can make a little progress in the south. Oh, they can make a little progress in the east. And they just keep doing it. Mm-hmm. And one one critical statistic, I saw this the other day, so forgive me if I have the exact percentage wrong, but at the outset of the war, polling inside of Russia showed that 85% of Russians had a favorable view of the Ukrainian people. And I don't think that you know, there's not a comparable war because the United States doesn't engage in wars of conquest like this. It's not like we're invading Mexico to get a piece of their oil or whatever. Right. But can you imagine? We it? we did that to Mexico a long time ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I should say modern <laughs> America. You know, we, modern. Yeah, okay, the, the native uh, Americans a while ago as well. But um, th- I bring this up, and a few, six months later, I think when this poll came out, that number had fallen to only seventy percent of Russians had a positive view of the Ukrainian people. And now you see these heartwarming photos of these poor Russian guys being stripped out of their house. Some of them are too old. They clearly mm-hmm. have no interest in dying in a war against people that they think of as their cousins or their little brothers. And the Ukrainians, on the other hand, are thrilled or very happy. Not all of them, but they're very happy to fight for their homeland. And they've shown that. And they've suffered horrific losses. It's mm-hmm. unimaginable the amount of problems that that country will have because of what they've done to defend themselves. So the possibility, I, I bring all this up to say that the possibility of the Russians just giving up and collapsing, especially as, okay, you can send 200,000 people and throw them at the problem, but those guys don't want to fight. Yeah. And maybe some of them do, and they'll, they'll kill a Ukrainian if it means they get to live and there will be more bloodshed. But it's entirely possible, like you said, you can see mass submission. Um, if, well, we don't have to get into the geography, but 
the way that the the Ukrainian advances are working out, it's possible you could have 20,000 Russian prisoners who decide, well, we'll probably be treated decently, uh, at least somewhat humanely by the Ukrainians because they know the world's watching. They'll be treated, we'll be treated better by, by the Ukrainians than we would treat them if they were prisoners. And you can see mass surrender. But that leads, and that's all very heartwarming for me as someone who supports Ukraine and, and wishes that Vladimir Putin suffers for this. Now, the dangerous part of this is how does Vladimir Putin take all of that? And the question is, does he launch a, some kind of nuclear strike to say to Ukraine, remember, you can have this conventional victory, but at the end of the day, I have the nukes and you don't. And the, the best thing I've heard, and a few people have said it, so I don't know who to credit, but someone else, this isn't my idea, is the way that we should think about Vladimir Putin nuclear weapons is to be concerned, but not afraid. Mm -hmm. Because his goal is that we are afraid we being the collective West, Ukrainians, everyone, that we are afraid that he would blow up the world. And give him anything he wants because right. of him. Right. You know, there are certain there are certain commentators, people in left and right, who they, you know, the answer is force Ukraine to surrender and negotiate with the Russians. And and what was the question again? Because at every stage of the war, that's been their only response. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that that's the proper response. And now the the thing is. Deterrence worked in this war, and this will be my last thought on this, and I'll let, let you guys jump in, but deterrence worked in Ukraine. The problem is Russia deterred the West mm. from getting involved, right? Mm -hmm. we, we believed, and I certainly believed it, and people I talked to at the Pentagon and lots of smart people believe that it would be catastrophic and there's no way the West could win, set aside nuclear weapons, a conventional war. So we decided not to get involved. We didn't want to be involved in any quagmire. Maybe we'd send some weapons, you know. And There was a time when sending javelins there was a concern that would lead to a nuclear war. And Putin has backed down from that, obviously, mm -hmm. right? We've sent a lot more than javelins there. And he's, there's a concern that if we were a, a, attack Russian territory, that would be cause for nuclear war. But the Russians are backing down from that red line as the Ukrainians are, according to Russia, storming Russian territory, storming part of Mother Russia. Mm -hmm. So the balance here and the real difficulty is, how do you take those threats seriously? But how do you deter Russia backwards? Because with just the aerial assets that the U.S. has in Europe just now, without even sending more stuff than that's there, we could kill tens of thousands of Russians. And there wouldn't be any need for a surrender because we could essentially level what's left of the Russian military. But I'm not saying you want to do that, but you may make, make it known to Vladimir Putin that you would have 100,000 dead Russians if you launched a nuke, a tactical nuclear weapon <laughs> thing, at, a, at a base. So. That, there aren't good answers to that, but those are just some ways to think about this bigger problem and to frame it, I think. Declan, so you and the Morning Dispatch team have been covering the war from its inception. Um, you've been, you know, the your team has been cultivating sources, finding the people who are have been at least more accurate than maybe the average person in their projections. What is your sense of what is the line the emerging line from the administration beyond russia you better not nuke ukraine what is your sense of what concretely would the united states be willing to do if 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 nuke uh, putin does pull the nuclear trigger it's a great question um i don't think it's one that the biden administration has answered clearly uh at least not publicly and uh and there are people that are concerned about that you know we don't have uh a, 18 months into the administration we don't have a a formal national defense policy um 
you know, the we're we're gonna have something on this in the morning dispatch tomorrow. Esther's been working on it today. Um, and and I asked for, <laughs> asked her for a deep debrief right before I got on here. But basically, what the extent to uh, that we should be worried about tactical nuclear weapons? Most people that we've talked to still think that that is. Uh, that Putin is bluffing, that we should not, or that we should call his bluff and not not react to it, um, <clears throat> and that you know even in the you know whether it be one percent chance likelihood, ten percent, fifteen percent, whatever number you want to put on it, that that he does end up pulling the trigger on this, it would be something uh, relatively smaller and low yield. It would be something that is more about messaging uh, than it is about gaining a battlefield, an advantage on the battlefield. It, you know, could be something that, you know, the first one goes uh, somewhere where it's not likely to have a huge casualty number. It's more about letting the West know, I, I have these, I will use them. Uh, so back off as, as kind of a last gasp attempt to, to uh, get that deterrence that you guys were talking about earlier. Um, and then, the, and then the the last aspect is that we would be aware that it's coming. Uh, that it's not something that Russia would be able to uh, do entirely covertly without you know U.S. intelligence picking up uh, the fact that they're preparing to actually launch these things. There's that's one of one of the most watched assets uh, in in the world is is um, you know these companies or these different countries' nuclear capabilities, and so it, it's something that. You know whether what the Biden administration's response will be. Uh, they will have at least some inkling that uh, that they need to be making that decision sooner rather than later. Andrew, so from a political standpoint, it appears that American support for Ukraine is holding very firm, in spite of a lot of stuff on on right wing media uh, that has been aimed at U.S. support for Ukraine, that has been aimed at the Biden administration's aid packages. Um, Republicans still, by and large, support Ukraine. There hasn't been a real wavering there either. Um, and I remembering back to February 24th when the war started, there was, although most Americans were not willing to entertain conventional, uh, use of conventional forces to protect Ukraine, that, uh, people were. There was enough anger there that people were question i have andrew what from a political standpoint would americans be willing to engage in conventional warfare either to preempt or in response to a russian nuclear strike i think you have a really hard time answering that from anything in current trends because i think mm -hmm. that that to the to the extent that most americans are engaging in the conflict it's it's ideological it's you know it's these people you know ukrainians on an ideological level are, are allies of democracy and the russians are not uh, and there's a domestic political element to it as well because of the 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 fact that there was like the um, you know, the early amount of, of a certain amount of prominent right wing people uh, digging in their heels, it kind of got swept up into the into the domestic um, argue arguing sphere. Uh, and, and people got to have their little fights online about it. And I think that 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 for, for most people, it hasn't really gone farther than that. It's 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 another issue that they that they talk about and post about and read about um, and care about. But 
but not anything like the the sort of question of oh my gosh are, are we now actually going to 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 do boots on the ground i and and for that reason it just seems it seems very unlikely um that that you were going that you would ever see the biden administration certainly moving like preemptively uh for mm-hmm. for anything like that even though i i obviously defer uh to to adam especially on all these kind of strategic questions cuz um but but uh, as far as reactively i I, I, I guess I have to punt that back to the field. I, it, would, it, it would be an un, unbelievable change. I mean, just like just like real quantum leap in, in how everybody views everything with them. I mean, it would shake things up considerably. So I don't, I, don't, I don't think you could draw a through line just from, oh, Americans still care and we didn't necessarily think that they would to, and that makes, that makes them more likely to countenance, you know, us getting more directly involved in the war. Yeah, I mean, I I think if you it, it it a lot depends on the circumstances of use. I think mm-hmm. number one, use at all would be such a shocking moment for the world that it's almost useless to sort of think through what a reaction be, and that would include say a demonstration blast, you know, uh, maybe a, like a a a, at a place like Snake Island or something like that. A, a largely a sim- demonstration blast that says we're really serious. That would be stunning mm-hmm. if it's a meaningful hit, and such as hitting a logistical node in an urban area. Um, then you know, at that point, you're dealing with mass casualties on a scale, maybe not if depending on the yield of the weapon, but enormous, um, just an enormous shocking event. And so it's it's at this point, I feel like it's almost useless to say what we what, how we'd respond emotionally to that but here's a question i and you punt to adam and i'm glad you punted to adam because i was about to punt to adam as well you're the biden administration one of the things that I, a number of nuclear experts have said is wait it's a little misleading to talk about the russian tactical nuclear arsenal because it's not really battlefield ready it, it's it's not like he has a battlefield ready tactical nuclear arsenal he has a big tactical nuclear arsenal but they have to move warheads and they have to, they, this is something we may well be able to see, not for sure, but may well be able to see. And the question I have for you, Adam, let's suppose we do see it. Let's suppose we do see transport of warheads and the, um, the process of, of arming aircraft or arming um, rockets. Do you... Do you, could you imagine a scenario in which the Biden administration says we're going to take out that airfield or we're going to take out that, um, you know, that 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 missile installation? We're going to take out that specific target before launch or is or is there, the Biden administration going to expose it, yell about it, threaten and then wait and see what happens? That's that I think that w- could be a very salient question relatively soon. Hopefully not, but maybe. That's, I think that is exactly uh, the right question. And recall, and well, the buildup, it took a few months, right? It actually right. took the better part of a year. It was in April of 2021 when we were talking about whether or not, uh, what, what they were up to, right? And the whole time that Russia was building up troops in Belarus, building up troops in Western Russia near the Ukrainian border, they were just saying, these are military exercises. We have no plans for an invasion, just blatantly mm-hmm. lying. And that's, in a way, it's part of the Russian toolbox. And this yeah. is what Putin does is, and if 
Putin was responsible for blowing up the Nord Stream pipelines, which I don't have evidence, but it seems to me I, I was not persuaded by the monologue on Fox News by that that guy with the bow tie. Um, <laughs> I, guess, I guess he doesn't do that anymore, but uh, that's how everyone remembers him, right? Uh, and how they will in 20 years. But uh, that's what Putin does. And I could imagine a scenario where Putin does blast off a tactical nuclear weapon and blames it on the United States. Uh, and that's something that you would say, well, Joe Biden did this. He clearly, I have no nothing to benefit. That would alienate all of my allies. Why would I, why would I launch a tactical nuclear weapon? I've said before that we should avoid nuclear war no matter what. Whereas Biden has said there would be consequences and clearly he wants this to happen. So in that sense, um, bombing the train, and I, I don't know the exact technical aspects of how you blow up nuclear weapons with airstrikes, right? We would have to go to, a, I'd have to call and talk to a source before that. But I think the better move is to expose it and to say, look, we were right about the invasion. We said that obviously we had intel of them setting up blood banks and field hospitals. It was very clear that they were ready to fight no matter what the outcome was. Um, and to do the same thing with the nuclear weapons and say, look, this is what they're doing. We're making this very clear to the world. And if a nuclear weapon goes off, <clears throat> we'll lie perhaps and say it was us, but we're not the ones transporting nukes um, to, to Ukraine. That's the Russians doing that and exposing them and making that very clear. And I think the Russians were in a way almost shook by how, how good our intelligence was. Right. So whether the prudent thing is to bomb it or to expose it, I, I leave that up to people who spent more time in college than I did. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I'm not going to grad school, you know, I'm stuck in journalism, that's for sure. So fortunately I can pa pass on these decisions, but that I think is the, the crucial thing is that we have to bear in mind the possibility that he uses a nuke and denies it. And, and for him, that may be a smart move because if he uses it and says it, for example, India, which has been on the fence, they have a long historical relationship, but they're clearly not happy. That moves India very clearly into the Western column, where they're like, we like the cheap weapons, we liked our historical ties, but no, this isn't for us, right? But if he says, well, hey, we don't know, and the Indians can say, look, no one knows, so we're going to stay, keep our close relationship with Putin. And, and then Putin's just down to Syria, uh, North Korea, and you know maybe whoever did the latest coup in West Africa, who we can be friends with. And those right. aren't, that's not a great alliance to have compared to a country with a billion and a half people. You know, it's interesting to me when I think about, so I think if you talk about the risks of a response, of a robust military response to Putin, if he if he uses a tactical nuclear weapon, one of the alternatives that I've heard is a large-scale American conventional strike that wrecks the remaining Russian forces in Ukraine, sinks the Black Sea fleet, for example, um, destroys what remains of sort of Russia's, the heart of Russia's conventional military but doesn't set one foot into <clears throat> Russian soil. There's no U.S. troops in Russia. Um, is A, that the kind of response that would deter future use of nukes while not precipitating a nuclear exchange, additional use of nukes? The risks of that, I think, are obvious, and everyone can sort of think through the risks of a conventional engagement in response to Russian nuclear use. But one thing that I think people are not thinking through enough is the risks of not engaging. What are, what are the knock-on effects if we do not engage? So one of them would be obviously additional nuclear usage in the Ukrainian theater. In other words, much larger scale to the point where it could tip the balance of the war. And, and this is something that I think people don't quite understand is one nuke, two nukes, three nukes, four nukes, five 
doesn't necessarily change the course of the war. 10, 15, 20, 20, then you start to talk about completely gutting the capacity of a nation state to resist. And so does failing to respond encourage nuclear usage? And then what are the knock-on effects, including does that send a message that says, okay, South Korea, Taiwan is the message now that you need to break out to obtain a nuclear weapon because you're not going to be able to count on American force to preserve the nuclear taboo. That just that's off the table now. That is gone. The idea that American force will preserve the nuclear taboo is just off the table. What does that mean in the short and medium term for world stability? Um, I think these are questions the risks of not responding need to be discussed every bit as much as the risks of responding. And I think I found myself, someone asked what if I was advising, I found myself more persuaded by the Petraeus view, which is that a conventional military response to tactical nuclear usage that sends the message that nuclear usage does not, uh, you do not obtain an advantage from nuclear usage is the better of a multiple dangerous, dangerous courses of action. Um, all right, so we've got about 19 minutes left. There's a few things that we haven't hit. Um, I'm gonna survey questions. Oh, here's a good one. And I'm gonna go, sorry, I'm gonna go back to you, Adam, on this. And uh, mm-hmm. and then De- Declan, we're coming to you on SCOTUS. So be pre- get yeah. ready. Um, this is, a, I think, a good question. Would admitting Na- Ukraine into NATO deter the strike? Um, well, it's a difficult question because NATO, the most famous aspect of NATO membership is Article 5, right. which is an attack on one is an attack on all. And that's only been invoked once in the alliance's, what, it's 49, so 80-year history, something like that, in, in the many, many years that, 75-plus years that NATO has existed. And that was on 9-11. When everyone, and that's why the yeah, war in Afghanistan was a NATO mission. A lot of people mm-hmm. neglect to realize that. And the problem is, and I, I remember I was in Tbilisi in Georgia, another country that Russia has invaded, talking to a, a member of parliament there a few years ago. And he, he really wanted to join NATO. He was a pro Western guy. And I, I, I remember telling him, I was like, Georgie, Georgie from Georgia. I said, Georgie, um, the problem is if you guys join tomorrow, we have to declare Article 5 and go to war with Russia. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, so in, in a sense, I suppose it would work because uh, Russia would have to go to war with us. But in reality, in order to be a member, you have to resolve all border disputes. Mm-hmm. And that's not just a recurrent, uh, that's not just a Ukraine issue. And they have all these other reasons that all these other things that they need to sort out um, before they can join. But that's the big one. And I think even Hungary had to resolve a border dispute when it was allowed to join NATO. And we don't really think about Hungary having these, you know, border clashes, but there were some some disagreements. And so perhaps in the future, in a few years, and NATO is ready, or when NATO is ready to take Ukraine and Ukraine is ready to join, maybe they resolve Crimea. Let's say they take everything else except Crimea, and then they can do it. And I think that would absolutely deter a future attack. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean to dodge the question. Uh, I only respond to that to say that it's not really the right question to ask because it's just technically impossible. Mm-hmm. And the the Georgian MP who I was talking to, he said, well, maybe we could uh, impose an exception or an amendment that says that Article 5 doesn't apply to these territories where we're having a fight now. 
But then what, what's, what's the point, right? If you're being under attack and you can't use NATO to repel that attack, then there, there's not a, a good reason. So that's, yeah. yeah. I mean, I would say the, the my last thought, and I'll make it quick, I promise, is the lesson of the Ukraine war is admit people into NATO quickly, as we're trying to do with Finland and Sweden, mm-hmm. or don't admit them. When they're stuck in that in-between place, it's a very dangerous place. So yeah. If we could, when NATO's ready, it will absolutely, when NATO, when everything is ready in Ukraine, they're qualified and everything is resolved, let them in. And that will absolutely deter this from ever happening again. But until then, it's just, it's not the right question to ask. Um, I'm going to go ahead and answer one question real quick, because it's a good question. It's a question uh, I hear a lot. Uh, It also implicates international law, which Sarah says is fictional, but is completely real. Um, Since... Ukraine got rid of their nukes based on the Budapest Memorandum. This was the agreement where Ukraine, it's a little bit of a misnomer to say that Ukraine had nukes. There were former Soviet nukes that were on Ukrainian soil, but Ukraine never had the nuclear codes for these things, as I understand it, that the command and control of them was still fundamentally in Russian hands, but the weapons were on Ukrainian soil. So, And there was no circumstance where Ukraine was going to be permitted to keep those things. And so the Budapest Memorandum was um, contained sort of what you might call sort of soft security promises. Here's the question. Since Ukraine got rid of the nukes based on the Budapest Memorandum, doesn't that obligate us to step in if Putin uses nukes? The short answer is no, we are not obligated to step in. Article five is the closest thing you have to a real, truly binding treaty obligation. And even then, even then, if the United States Congress and the president said, we are not stepping in, um, we're not, we're not compelled. We're not compelled to engage in military action. We're certainly not compelled by the Budapest memorandum. Um, although, you know, it's, it's one of these situations where more promises, in air quotes, promises were made than ever were intended to be kept. Perhaps because, in in some, in perhaps because there was also no real sense that a general war would break out along. This was not something that was fully contemplated. Um, but the short answer: Are we obligated? No, we are not obligated. Okay, Declan, SCOTUS. Uh, Morning Dispatch has covered the opening of the new term. Um, What are the cases to look for? Um, We know this is not going to be as momentous of a term as last term because there's no case like Dobbs. Um, But what what are the cases to look for? What sort of the uh, what should the the um, the not what should the average American be? looking at and thinking about as there as this SCOTUS term opens. And Adam's yeah. had it. Um, Adam's well, had it. He's just gone. <laughs> I'm uh I'm honored that you asked me when when you are the host of the uh the flagship legal podcast here at the uh, but I'm the host of this dispatch, this dispatched live. So I'm the one asking the questions. True. Okay. So if if I misspeak or if I if I miss anything, <laughs> obviously feel free to to step in. But um, yeah, I think it, it makes sense to look at this upcoming Supreme Court term kind of in a couple different buckets. So the the um, you know the overarching theme of several cases uh, that we're going to see this coming year. So again, this term cases are going to start being argued um, 
you know, before the court oral arguments and then, and then, I mean, I think today or, or yesterday they, they began, um, but they'll run over the next couple months and then we'll get decisions, um, you know, in early to, to mid 2023 for, for these, uh, for these cases. And so, um, we've got kind of an overarching theme of race being, uh, running through a lot of these. So that's, uh, Merrill versus Milligan. This is a, uh, redistricting case that it involves, um, the, the 2020 census and, and the redistricting process that Alabama has about, I think, don't quote me on this, 25 to 30% black population. Um, and there were seven house districts redrawn after the 2020 census. And only one of those districts was a majority black district. Um, uh, the state NAACP chapter uh, challenged that map, arguing that um, it illegally diluted black voters power by spreading them out um, through a, a number of districts. Um, and so that's going to be a case that the Supreme Court is going to hear Moore versus Harper is another uh, case involving uh, uh, redistricting in North Carolina um, and about who, which, like from a from a mechanism perspective, who has the authority to uh, rule or, or draw these um, these maps. It's kind of a dispute between the state legislature and, and a state court. Um, and then we have another affirmative action case getting back to the court. Uh, that's the Students for Fair Admissions versus the president and fellows of Harvard College. Um, and I think North Carolina is also a, a co-defendant in that case. Um, and that's, I, I think that's probably going to be the Dobbs of this uh, mm -hmm. term, not to the same extent, obviously, that that we saw last year, but that's going to, people have a lot of feelings about that issue one way or the other. It's going to, you know, be another highly divisive um, case. And and just to kind of go off on a tangent there a little bit, that that is kind of one of the overarching themes that I'm going to be looking at this term and, and that I think we're going to look at, at on advisory opinions and, and in the morning dispatches, just kind of how politicized the court has been. Justices are acknowledging it openly. I think Elena Kagan gave a, a, a speech a couple of weeks ago where she, you know, talked about the legitimacy of the court being at stake and, and the need to kind of um, take, you know, be, be careful with the court's reputation. John Roberts pushed back on that a little bit, you know, made the case that the court has throughout its history been deciding divisive cases. Uh, we need to just follow the letter of the law. Um, but it's, it's, it, it doesn't help uh, matters that, you know, the legislative and executive branches continually are punting things to the judicial branch, knowing it's going to get shot down, knowing it's not legal, what have you. Um, and just kind of putting it like a, a bag of burning dog poop on their doorstep, say, you deal with this. Uh, <laughs> and that, you know, takes the the court's legitimacy even further with with voters. And then you get the, um, you know, the, the push to expand the court or institute term limits or things like that, kind of the more uh, structural reforms there. So I've been talking for a long time by Dispatch Live standards. I'm going to pause there. David, if you want to <laughs> talk, we got we got a question specifically asking you about 303 Creative. Uh, ah. So why don't. Why don't you, I'll tee you up on that one to talk about okay. the differences between that and Masterpiece Cake Shop. Oh, gosh. Okay, nine minutes to go. I'll just only take eight minutes and 50 seconds. But <laughs> no, um, so this is going to be a really interesting case because it is a sharper, it, it defines the issue, issues more sharply than Masterpiece Cake Shop. Because Masterpiece Cake Shop, the argument was this. Uh, well, first, let me say what it wasn't, and then I'll say what it was. So the argument was not 
that Jack Phillips, owner of Masterpiece Cake Shop, should be able to, under the First Amendment, free exercise clause or free speech clause or freedom of association or any other sort of First Amendment theory, ex- not be able to serve gay customers. In other words, refuse gay customers. That was not the argument. He was not refusing gay customers. What he was saying was he was, regardless of the you know the protected class status or the identity of the customer, he would not bake cakes that sent a message that he didn't approve of. And so his argument was, it doesn't matter who it was. If you made me bake a cake that said like KKK, happy KKK day, if such a thing exists, I'm not baking that because I don't create cakes that send a message I don't like. So this goes up to the Supreme Court. And one of the absolute key questions was, wait a minute, is designing a custom cake really an expressive act? And if it is an expressive act, what's the limit? Can somebody say, I, you know, everyone watches shows like Top Chef and would say that there's a lot of sort of talent poured into cooking the perfect whatever filet. Can I say that that's my artistic ability? That's an expressive act. And so now I'm not going to cook a filet or, um, or, uh, you know, you name it. What is the service where there's artistic elements attached to it? Does that mean floral, a florist? There is a famous case called Arlene's Flowers involving floral arrangements. So how much of this is really expressive and how much of it is provision of a service? And if you if you read or watched or read the, the oral argument in Masterpiece Cake Shop, this was a big deal. This, this what are the, what is the line? And so the court didn't really decide that. It punted on it because hidden in the record of the case was some outright anti-religious hostility directed at Jack Phillips by the decision makers in the um, in, in the Colorado Civil Rights Commission. And so 7-2, the court says, the anti-religious hostility is what is, the, that is the core, that's the key fact here. And the anti-religious hostility violated Jack Phillips' rights. We don't have to really reach the other First Amendment question. So they gave him a victory that was important, but limited. So fast forward in the 303 creative case, same facts in the sense that the the um, the petitioners say, we serve anybody. We don't discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation, gender identity, um, race, sex, you name it. We serve anybody, but we will not create art that advances a point of view we disagree with. And this time, instead of being- Just to eight, interrupt quickly for, for listeners who 303 Creative, they build websites for- Yes. Um, yeah. They're graphic designers. They do, they build websites. So they say, I'm not going to build a website that is, and so the expression argument, it's it's quite clear. (laughs) Like these are words, you know, these are words and images. This is absolute expressive content. And the court below said, yep, it is. It's expressive content, but the civil rights statute still trumps it. And they use this really weird argument that kind of basically said the more unique the expression of the artist, the greater the state interest in commandeering their work. And that the lower court even used this term called like monopoly of one, because there is only one person who does you, you, the artist's work, which is a wild theory, because it essentially what it says is like, well, let's say you're the greatest painter in the state of Colorado and a white supremacist like Nick Fuentes comes and says, I need you to paint me a heroic portrait. 
And you go, no, I'm not going to paint a heroic portrait of a white supremacist. And then he goes to a civil, you know, there's a civil rights complaint. Well, why? Why? What's the civil right? Well, he, he discriminated on me on, against me on the basis of race because it's really only white people are white supremacists. And so this is racial discrimination. When I say it out like like that, it, it it's absurd. It's mind blowing. You wouldn't you wouldn't do this. Um, but that's you know, but that's the reasoning is that the per, the uniqueness of the expressive work of the artist actually renders them more vulnerable to the state commandeering their expression. So I actually filed an amicus brief in this case. I got off my litigation bench, uh, dusted off the old typewriter and hammered out <laughs> an amicus brief in the case, in part because this is a core free speech issue that I had litigated during my litigation days, and I kind of want to see it through. Um, but that's what's at issue in the case. And I only took like seven minutes. So we've got like... <laughs> Three minutes to go, uh, so I want to I want to move from sort of the law to politics, and and I want to I want to have kind of a roundtable. Andrew, you haven't you've kind of been sidelined there. I saw you slowly reaching for the bourbon bottle behind you. Uh, <laughs> so the Harvard case, the Harvard case. This is where Harvard. There's compelling evidence Harvard discriminated on the basis of race against Asian students to diversify its student body and Asian students were paying the price. There seems to be one of these areas where elite opinion and mass opinion are really divergent. That elite opinion is ready to explode if Harvard loses, but mass opinion seems to be with surprising degree of consensus across different racial and ethnic categories in the US to be quite suspicious of explicitly race-based affirmative action. Am I wrong about this? No, I think you're right. And I think it's also relatively easy to explain, which is that the the elite opinion about it is 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 based on the conversation of how do we create a system that achieves, you know, these particular overarching aims that we would like to see, like increased diversity, um, increased parity um, between people of different ethnic and racial backgrounds. Um, and and that that, you know, whether messily or not, policies like this in theory move you toward something like that. Whereas I think the, the mass experience of the question of how should college admissions work just kind of as a, as a matter of, of just kind of broad perception of, of, of fairness and justice is if my kid is qualified uh, for this spot, they should get it period. If your kid is more qualified than my kid, they should get the nod. If my kid is more qualified than your kid, and I think my kid probably is more qualified than your kid, my kid should get the spot, you know? And 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 that's just kind of the 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 beginning and the end of it. Um, so mm -hmm. I think and, and I think that's that's more than sufficient when 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 you kind of just have regular people run into uh these sorts of quota type policies, obviously the first place their mind is going to go is if you are trying to hit anything other than um sort of uh meritocratic admissions, then you are definitionally becoming less meritocratic than you otherwise would have been, which is kind of like we were talking about the other week on Dispatch Live, whether mer mm -hmm. meritocracy is real or matters or anything. But I do think that is the just kind of the whole ball game as far as the, the divide that you described. All right. Last question goes to Adam because he, he got knocked off or either was outraged by my answer on the Budapest memorandum and left short for a brief protest, but you're back. I want to honor your return by giving you the final question. Aaron Judge hit his 60-second home run tonight. Is he the he? true? Yes. 
Is he the true is, home run king? Uh, this is a Declan question. I'm a, <laughs> I like the, the true American sport of football Americano. Uh, I, it seems like I guess he hit a bunch of home runs. Uh, some guys who were doing drugs hit more home runs 20 years ago, but this is important or something. Uh, and I know I, mean, I do love sports, but um, I could care less about this. I mean, shout yeah. out, shout out to the baseball fans, but that that's not me. But I do appreciate. I simply, it. I simply must interject to say that while <laughs> it is very cool that Aaron Judge hit 62 tonight, all power to him. He's awesome. Let us not overlook the fact that this week Albert Pujols hit his 702nd and 703rd home runs and passed Babe Ruth for second all time uh, in total career runs batted in. That's all. And it so, must also be said that the Cubs will not lose 90 games this year. They will only lose about 85. So that is massively outpacing expectations. But David, no, to your question. On this call. Yeah, go, go, Declan, go. The this is the greatest PR job of Major League Baseball marketing that I've ever seen. That they they came up with this. They don't want to explicitly say Aaron Judge has the clean record because just for listeners, Barry Bonds, Sammy Sosa, Mark McGuire have all hit 70 or more home runs. I think Sosa might have been 68, something like that, but all were using or highly suspected of using steroids to do so. Judge is quote unquote the first clean player to surpass 61. Um but they don't say clean. They say the highest in the American league, which cuts out half of the teams. So they can just say, if we exclude those three, uh, then this is the real record, but um, more power to him. He's in, he's doing it in an era of uh, the, the statistic that I find most fascinating about this is that he, I think he has 24 home runs more than the next highest person. It's the greatest disparity between one and two since Babe Ruth yeah. when he was like the first player to realize like, Oh, we could hit home runs. That would help. Yeah. Um, so it's a totally different game. And, uh, and he's by far surpassing the league. It's incredibly impressive. Um, but it is not the true home run record. That is. My <clears throat> okay. That's wrong. It is the true home run record in my heart, <laughs> in my heart. Cause it's the PED scandal that alienated me from major league baseball, which is very sad. It's my own issue to work through. Are but you the true pickleball champion in your heart too? I'm not y'all won fair and square. <laughs> Enjoy your throne. It won't last long, but anyway, um, the last, the last thing, very important. Um, our Naples summit, our Naples uh, post-election date dispatch, Maple some Maple summit, Naples summit is on. Um, it has not been canceled by Hurricane Ian, thankfully. And so we would really love it if you're holding out and you don't know how to process the election and you're you're really wondering, um, who is it that's going to help me figure out what's going to happen in this next phase of American life? The answer is the dispatch and our honored guests. So please um, come to Naples, register for Naples. We've got a great lineup of speakers so far. Um, and we have a great lineup of dispatch members. And we just had a dispatch meetup in Nashville. And I think one of the coolest things about the dispatch meetup was the camaraderie and the fellowship with the dispatch members. So not only are you going to hear from folks that um, both politi in the political world and the pundit world who uh, are going to help guide us through these election results, but I, you're going to also meet some pretty cool people who are dispatch members. And so uh, please go to the website, sign up for Naples, um, and hope to see you 
in Florida in November, a great time to be in Florida. So, all right. Thank you all for watching. Really appreciate it. And we'll be back next week.